Hello again, my name is William Strejcik and allow me to welcome you to the Orient Express, a podcast focusing on the historical development of the Middle East region, its politics, war and conflict in the 20th and 21st century. In this podcast, I shall guide you through approximately 120 years of tangled history with an aim to cover all the important issues and events that might help you to better understand the present-day situation of the region, its individual countries and their struggles and issues that stands on the very same historical development that this podcast aims to describe. In today's episode, we are going to look upon the involvement of the Ottoman Empire before the First World War and its motives and strategy that subsequently led to its engagement in this bloody conflict and to its ultimate demise. So sit back and relax, as you are about to board yet another history episode on the Orient Express podcast. The Ottoman Empire's expulsion from Europe, where it had been a major power for more than four centuries, marks one of the major turning points in modern history, one whose consequences for Europe and the Middle East we still have to absorb today. Among the stages of this expulsion, the Balkan Wars of the 19th and early 20th centuries, the occupation of the Ottoman capital by the Entente powers in 1918, the empire's subsequent and comprehensive dissolution in 1922, The government's decision to intervene in an intra-European war in 1914 played a crucial role. Yet the decision is a puzzling one, since the conflict between Europe's two alliance systems was one in which the Ottomans had no immediate stake. Given the war's disastrous consequences and its human cost for the entire Middle East, it is not surprising that the decision taken by the leadership in 1914 has been roundly blasted by historians and memoir writers alike. In these accounts, Enver Pasha, the war minister, a hawk in thrall to Germany, more or less single-handedly pushed the empire into a war it did not want. Alternatively, intervention has been ascribed to the hard-brained ideas of a tiny inner circle of the young Turk leadership who had hijacked Ottoman policy, either because they were corrupted by German gold, blinded by German promises, pressured by German diplomats, or moved by voracious personal ambition, megalomaniac expansionism or naivety, attributable to their below-average intelligence. In short, instead of welcoming the war as a reprieve from international pressures and remaining aloof from the bloodshed enveloping Europe, Enver and the men around him had sped up the sick man's demise by entering the fight on the side of Germany and Austria-Hungary on October 29, 1914. And yet, from a global perspective, The Ottomans' entry into the First World War can be seen as a reaction against the principal historical forces of the time, the steady expansion of European economic, political and military control. Ottoman leaders in 1914 made the only decision they believed could save the people from partition and foreign rule. Envisioning outright foreign control in the Near East required no great stretch of the imagination. By 1900s, Europe's territorial control, not least thanks to tools produced by the Industrial Revolution, extended to some 85% of the globe's surface, rendering the Ottoman Empire one of the globe's last holdouts. For the Ottomans, the path to international security ran through an alliance with one of the great powers. By 1914, a general consensus had emerged around this vision, even if its implementation became subject to personal disagreements and rivalries among the top officials. For reasons that will become clear, the choice of ally fell on Germany. While its military and political leadership became convinced that the world had entered an era in which states and peoples could survive only through demonstration of military power, the Ottoman Empire did not leap into war at the first opportunity. 
Once it became clear, however, that their alliance with Germany would not survive further delay, they embarked upon war confident that only the battlefield could bring the Empire the unifying and liberating experience it so desperately needed. Though the Ottoman Empire was an agrarian empire in the traditional sense, in the last decades it had been faced with the growth of the same kinds of nationalisms that beset the Habsburgs and would eventually overtake the empires of the new imperialism. But the Ottomans had to confront the ground-shaking forces of anti-colonial nationalism during the high noon of European imperialism, mixing geopolitical danger with domestic vulnerability. The Ottoman state thus had to come to terms with subject populations who increasingly felt themselves to be different precisely in an age when other empires, those backed by powerful industry, were spreading. Unlike the new imperialists to the west, however, for the Ottoman leaders, the survival of the state and the survival of the empire were one and the same. To be sure, by 1914, the Ottoman Empire had become a perforated society, with perforations running along ethnic and religious lines. Throughout the long 19th century, the empire had endured dramatic shifts in its external boundaries, a vast remapping that truncated its territory and generated waves of migration, leading to the major blurring of its internal social boundaries as well. The question of whether the Ottomans could have saved the empire by employing, before nationalism became too virulent, current domestic policies, thereby preserving its multi-ethnic and multi-religious, even cosmopolitan character, is now unanswerable. To us, the possibility that it could have done so carries tremendous appeal, since it would have spared the region the ugly, often bloody and murderous process of disintegration and the subsequent, often equally horrific, process of nation-building. In 1914, however, Ottoman observers needed only to look at recent history, whether across the globe or at home, to conclude that military power alone could prevent dismemberment and colonial status. Even so, the empire's military, political and intellectual leaders were not engaged solely in a campaign of self-defense. They firmly believed that the militarization of society and its institutions, which they based on European models, were the only road to an Ottoman modernity. In 1914, the government faced four main foreign policy challenges, each in turn carrying a set of crucial domestic implications. The Armenian reform project in eastern Anatolia, the Aegean Islands question, a loan agreement with one or more of the European governments, and the Liman von Sanders affair. From the Ottoman perspective, these challenges posed life-or-death questions and they tended to come from the Entente, Britain, France and Russia. The archival evidence shows that for the Tsarist government in St. Petersburg, the Balkan Wars, the Lehman von Sanders affair, the possibility of Greek-Ottoman war and the July crisis were all seen in the context of Russian intentions to seize control over Istanbul and the Ottoman Straits. Once the war raged in Europe, the Entente governments, as we shall see, issued in writing a promise that they would protect the empire's territorial integrity in exchange for its neutrality, an offer that the Ottoman leadership turned down. Rejecting the promise was not simply a matter of misplaced suspicion, however. Hence, when the Entente in August and September 1914, after much diplomatic wrangling, issued its guarantee of territorial integrity for the duration of the war, it should come as no surprise that the decision-makers in Istanbul treated the Entente promise as an empty one, a diplomatic hoodwink intended to buy time and to prevent the conflict from spreading. On the eve of the Great War, it was modernizing ideology that dominated the Ottomans' political and military leadership. 
becoming modern meant the establishment of a sovereign, economically and politically independent state that enjoyed full membership in the international state system and access to international law. In theory, the Ottoman Empire had been a member of the Concert of Europe since 1856, when the Ottomans were signatory to the Treaty of Paris, ending the Crimean War. In reality, this great power status and membership in a system whose mandate it was to preserve peace by defending the international status quo had not prevented the empire from suffering a series of territorial and diplomatic losses that left the country utterly demoralized and in financial ruin. Since 1878 alone, these territorial losses included Cyprus, Batum and Kars, Montenegro, Romania and Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Tunisia, Egypt, Crete, Kuwait, Bulgaria, Tripoli, Dodecanese Islands, Western Thrace, Aegean Islands, Albania and Macedonia. And although the great powers did intervene on behalf of the Ottoman Empire at the Berlin Congress of 1878, following the war between the Empire and Russia, they did so because they feared Russian expansion, which suggested that when Western and Russian interests would align, European concern for Ottoman integrity would cease. Until the beginning of this period of staggering losses, perhaps as many as half of the Empire's subjects resided in its European provinces, collectively known as Rumeli. The Balkans thus formed an integral, if not crucial, part of the Empire's economic, political and cultural life. By the 20th century, Rumeli had shrunk significantly. It now represented but one-fifth of the Empire's total population. The state's massive reform programs of the 19th century proved unable to reverse the slippage in the Empire's international footing. Beginning with its military and bureaucratic reforms in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the Ottoman state implemented policies designed to regain its rank as one of the most prosperous and orderly states in the world, a proud position it had occupied in the 16th century. With Western European powers now in the driver's seats, however, by the mid-19th century, the Empire's statesmen had embraced both the principle and the work of reform. Not because reforms were forced on them, but because they believed in these measures as the best way of how to regain strength and stability. This reform movement grew from inside the Empire in response to the pressures and challenges posed by the European Great Power System. Thus, these reformers initially adopted European methods and techniques not with resentment or hostility, but with a great deal of respect and even admiration. In these efforts to fit into the emerging international society of states, the government hired European technical experts to reform its army, bureaucracy and law. These reformers also sent their own technocrats to learn new methods in Berlin, London and Paris. Ottoman Empire was not alone in this matter, since various other European governments choose the same way. The Spanish and Swedish governments, to choose Western European examples, also sent officers for training to Berlin, London and Paris. Further to the east, Bulgaria, Greece and even Russia all participated in this process of acquiring new skills and technologies. This embrace of European-based reforms gradually gave way to the conviction that Western arguments for reform were simply tools of European imperialism. The new Ottoman leadership of the 20th century viewed great power diplomacy as a fixed game. The great powers were the house and you could not beat it by playing by the rules. In the face of these territorial losses, diplomatic defeats and severe economic difficulties, the generations of pro-European reformers were eventually replaced by increasingly radical younger leaders who believed that diplomatic history had taught a single lesson – only military power could preserve the empire. 
This new generation of leaders organized itself as the Ottoman Committee of Union and Progress and succeeded in 1908 in toppling the regime of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. In what became known as the Young Turk Revolution 1908, the Ottoman Committee of Union and Progress compelled the regime to reinstate the constitution of 1876 and to call for general elections for a new chamber of deputies. With a bloodless revolution, empire-wide elections, and the opening of the chamber in 1908, the Ottoman Empire, it seemed, had transformed itself into a liberal constitutional monarchy. While the revolution's aftermath saw the birth of a lively press and the expressions of high hopes for union and progress and liberty, justice and brotherhood, as so many postcards and placards proclaimed, the years that followed were also marked by deep crises of internal violence, including the massacre of 20,000 Armenians in the Adana region in 1909, wars in North Africa and the Balkans in 1911-1913, and continued financial insecurity. Finally, in the context of the Balkan Wars, the Ottoman Committee of Union and Progress seized their authoritarian control over the state apparatus in 1914 and continued to tighten its grip through the war years. In the middle of the July crisis, on July 13, 1914, and about two weeks after the assassination of the Habsburg heir apparent Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, the Grand Vizier and Foreign Minister Said Halim Pasha dispatched a confidential note written in his own hand to War Minister Enver Pasha, conveying the strong possibility of the outbreak of war between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. Said Halim beat the alarm bells based on information from an authoritative and high-ranking source in the German Foreign Office itself. The contact had revealed remarkable news. I can tell you confidentially that next week war will break out between Austria and Serbia, the contact wrote. We hope that the war is no longer avoidable because it is perhaps the final chance for Austria to deal with Serbia. But one does not have full confidence that Vienna will demonstrate the energy necessary for this decision. While the note exposes the attitudes of at least some in Berlin during the July crisis, it also demonstrates that those plying the Ottoman rudder were by no means ignorant as to the real possibility of a major European war in late July 1914. In hindsight, these gathering war clouds on the European horizon offered the Empire a precious opportunity for domestic reform. In Turkey, Yusuf Hikmet Bayur made this point forcefully in his monumental history of the Turkish Revolution, published between 1940 and 1967, in more than 5,000 pages. Bayur drew not only on the vast document collections made public by the European governments after 1919, but also on the unpublished Ottoman archival material, newspapers and political memoirs. On the basis of this rich documentation, he concluded that the Ottoman government, led by the triumvirate Talat and Var Kemal, had entered the war without any compelling reason. Bayur was the grandson of the former Grand Vizier and Ottoman Committee of Union and Progress arch-rival Kemal Pasha, and he criticized harshly the attempts of successive government at reorganizing the state's administrative, financial and military apparatus after the two Balkan wars. In mid-1914, the then Grand Vizier and War Minister Mahmoud Shekhbat Pasha had enlisted British, French and German officers and technical specialists into the state's service. Mahmoud Shekhbat had hoped both to improve and modernize the state's institutions and to establish more cordial foreign relations with the European powers in the process. 
Writing from the perspective of the new Turkish Republic established in 1923, Bayer found such policies terribly imprudent, because in his view, they had only fueled the imperial rivalries in the region. Leaders such as Enver, Said Halim, and Talat failed to understand the effects of their policies because they were men who lacked the skills and abilities of true statesmanship. In Bayer's words, they were below average and simple-minded individuals. Finally, Bayer accused the Ottoman Committee of Union and Progress leadership of chasing ideals like pan-Turkism and pan-Islamism and entering a world war unnecessarily and with calamitous consequences. Their course stood in stark contrast to Turkey's splendid isolation during the Second World War. Once the navy had mined and closed the straits to all traffic in late September, the German government would have treated the Ottomans with kindness and would have provided each and every type of support to the Istanbul government in exchange for its invaluable service of cutting off British and French supply lines to Russia. Thus, even Bayer implicitly endorsed a policy that sided with Germany, although not an alliance and an intervention. Whatever the majority of historians and memoir writers may have claimed after the war, the sources for this podcast strongly suggest that it was not only Enver Pasha who supported the option for war in 1914. The history of the late Ottoman period has been shaped by what we now know about the war and its outcome. The war's relatively long duration, for instance, led historians like Bayer to depict the Ottoman decision for war as a death wish. This understanding fails to recognize that despite the intense militarism and armaments raised in Europe, many contemporaries believe that a general war, if it broke out at all, could last no more than a matter of months, and that it would have been concluded by a negotiated peace rather than decisive military victory on one side over the other. If the Ottoman leaders could plausibly have expected a shorter confrontation, room must be allowed for the possibility that they were seeking not the grandiose creation of a Muslim empire in Central Asia and elsewhere, as had been charged, but rather a long-term alliance with a great power and in particular with Germany. From that alliance, Ottomans could hope for a period of stability, a period marked by international security and economic advances. But perhaps what accounts most for the deep entrenchment of the reigning view of the Ottoman decision for war is what has been referred to as imposed historical amnesia or a post-war amnesia in the Turkish historiography of the early Republican era. Following the Turkish War of Independence in 1919-1922 and the establishment of the Republic of Turkey in 1923, Turkish historiography embraced vigorously the percepts of the nation-state and sought a complete break with the Ottoman Empire even as the Republic continued to rely on the political, social and institutional structures of the late Ottoman period. In 1914, the July crisis and the possibility of war between Austria-Hungary and Serbia seemed to offer an escape from what many Ottomans perceived to be a dead end. With the support and guidance of the German Empire, Ottoman leaders hoped to carry through the kind of radical transformation they deemed necessary for the creation of a modern, sustainable state. Wartime, some of these leaders believed, presented a suitable, even ideal environment for the realization of such drastic changes. The young Turks intended to transform the empire into a politically and economically independent modern country by removing foreign control and cultivating a citizenry that would be loyal to the state. These individuals imagined that conditions of war could offer an appropriate pretext for the expulsion of foreign businesses and the nullification of fiscal and legal exemptions for foreign nationals, the so-called capitulations. 
Wartime, moreover, presented the state with additional tools for the mobilization of the citizenry behind the Istanbul government. Resituating the decision for war in the psychological climate of pre-war society makes it possible to see Ottoman intervention as the product of wider political trends rather than of an immediate pressures of the July crisis. Feroz Ahmad had remarked that the Ottoman Committee of Union and Progress leaders, civilian and military alike, were united in their strong desire to achieve full independence and were prepared to go to war for this cause. Thus, Turkey's intervention in 1914 was not the result of collusion between the Germans and the war party. It was mainly determined by the nationalist aspirations which Enver Pasha came to personify. If we follow Ahmad's lead in that Enver's actions reflected the wider circles of Ottoman's leadership and society, then the empire's entry into the First World War must be re-examined in light of the prevailing political arguments circulating on the eve of the war. Scholars who have maintained that Enver single-handedly showed the empire into the war have provided evidence to the contrary. The Turkish historian Baikara, for example, has pointed out how the defeats in the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1914, which forced hundreds of thousands of displaced Ottoman Muslims to seek refuge in Asia Minor, created a deep sense of violation and a call for revenge. From a geography textbook published in 1913, Baikara quoted this revealing passage. In 1912, the Balkan states formed an alliance against Turkey. After fierce battles, Turkey lost all of Rumelia, except for Istanbul, the Straits and Edirne province. Much innocent Muslim and Turkish blood was shed during this period. Women and children indiscriminately were cut up and butchered. Villages were burnt and razed. Now in Rumelia, under every rock and beneath the soil lie thousands of dismembered bodies with eyes gouged out and stomachs slit. It is our children's and grandchildren's national duty to right this wrong and to prepare for taking revenge for the pure and innocent blood that has flowed like waterfalls. This passage conveys just how deep-seated was the need for revenge and how accepted was the idea of an Ottoman forward offensive action. By July 1914, bellicose notions of revenge, retribution and recovery had become embedded in Ottoman identity. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as the political, military and intellectual elites in the capital embraced and promoted the ideologies of anti-imperialism and social Darwinism, the belief in struggle and war as the only avenues to Ottoman liberation increasingly acquired currency. A number of historians have acknowledged this aspect of the Ottoman decision for war in 1914 by appropriately referring to the entire period from 1914 as a war of independence. Enver Pasha shared these values, but he differed from his many like-minded contemporaries in important respects. He held the office of war minister and he considered himself to be the ultimate leader and hero of the movement opposing European imperialism. Enver's grandiosity, however, in no way lessens the fact that his contemporaries shared his worldview and his strategy. Enver's foreign policy ambitions have frequently been depicted not only as pan-Islamic, but at different times as pan-Turkic dreams as well. It has been claimed, for example, that greed rather than necessity drove the Ottoman Empire into the First World War. Its war aim was to realize the imperialist vision of the powerful minister of war Enver Pasha. A tangled web of grievances and revengeist hopes geared towards reiteration of Ottoman imperial glory and the unification of the Turkic peoples within an expanded empire. 
Such conclusions overlook the fact that the German Emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, backed by a wide circle of German scholars and politicians, promoted pan-Islamist ideology to a much greater extent than Enver ever did. To these Germans, pan-Islamism meant the fomentation of revolution in the imperial territories of the Entente, while Germany played the role of liberator. Enver, perhaps more accurately attuned to the illusory nature of a global pan-Islamic revolution, reminded Berlin that the declaration of jihad would necessarily have to be directed against all infidel powers, including Germany, and hence could not be an option. He therefore suggested that rather than declaring jihad, Sultan Mehmed V would call upon all Muslims to take up arms against the powers of the Triple Entente. Nonetheless, some two weeks after the Ottoman entry into the war, on November 14, 1914, the highest-ranking religious official proclaimed jihad to a crowd gathered outside the mosque of Mehmed the Conqueror. Rather than the pursuit of pan-Islamist or pan-Turkist objectives, examination of the official documentation and the political literature of the time suggest that the Ottoman leadership viewed the war as a historic opportunity of a different kind. Shortly after the attack on Russia across the Black Sea that finally brought the Ottomans into war on October 29, 1914, the German general and reformer of the Ottoman army, Kolmar von der Goltz, sent a congratulatory telegram to Enver Pasha. Goltz exclaimed, All Turkey now had the opportunity in one fell swoop to lift itself up to the heights of its former glory. May she not miss this opportunity. To the Ottomans, the alliance with Germany and the war held out the promise of regaining, if not former glory, as Gauls had put it, then at least the empire's security and independence. Throughout their wartime partnership with Germany, the Ottomans made it clear that they were acting in the deliberate pursuit of their national interests. When the Ottoman navy minister Kemal Pasha and Enver rejected a sum of money Berlin had offered to finance an expedition against the Suez Canal in early 1915, Enver declared the amount sadly wanting and he aired some of his general's view about the German-Ottoman alliance. If Germany supports Turkey materially and financially, it does so for its own advantage. If Turkey accepts German aid and thereby ties its fate to that of Germany, then it too does so exclusively to its own advantage. There can be no illusion about that. Similarly, Enver complained about the fact that General Otto Lehmann von Sanders, the head of the German military mission in the Ottoman Empire, took decisions without consulting the Jember ambassador, Baron Hans von Fangenheim, with whom Enver enjoyed much better report. In general, the entry into the war emerges as a continuation rather than a new chapter in Ottoman political thinking. To emphasize this climate of opinion is not to downplay the vulnerable position the Ottoman Empire certainly occupied in the international order of the early 20th century. Had it not been for the heated domestic climate that is reflected in the contemporary literature, however, the Ottoman leaders might have behaved differently during the July crisis. An alternative course of action could have aimed at collaboration with the Triple Entente, but it would have required willingness to engage with these powers and confidence that their interests were reconcilable. This willingness, however, could not be found in the climate of the late Ottoman period. With that being said, we've arrived at the very end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aim to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. 
Also, if you found this episode interesting, I will be more than glad for sharing and you can also visit my Instagram account or Facebook page called The Orient Express Middle East History Podcast, where I am regularly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes. So if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button. See you next week with another episode of The Orient Express History Podcast.